Well, we've been talking about these core values. We first started talking about how important the Bible was to us, right? We're going to base every decision that we make as a church and us individually on the Word of God, right? Amen? We also talked about dependent prayer, how important it is for us to depend solely on God. And then God begins to use us as his hand extended. We've been talking a lot about that even this morning. Authentic worship. Last week we talked about what worship ain't, right? Can I use that term? I'm from Missouri, so I can say that, right? I'm a hillbilly. We talked about what worship is not. It's not about a building. It's not about us. Who is it all about? It's all about God. It's all about focusing all of our attention on him and trusting him and lifting him up. This morning we're going to be talking about creative evangelism, but next week the Christ-like discipleship, loving relationships. So let's read together this paragraph related to creative, creative evangelism. It's it's our core value, what we believe. Let's read it together. Ready? Creative evangelism. We believe the lost people matter to God and therefore ought to matter to the church. We are dedicated to bringing people to a commitment to Christ through God-honored, creative, and relevant means. I'd like to share a story with you uh, from one of my favorite authors. He wrote a lot back in the 80s and 90s. His name is Dr. Tony Campolo. Tony wasn't a pastor or preacher, even though he spoke a lot all over the United States. He was a sociology professor, actually, from Philadelphia. But he helped many generations of young people, especially, be bold about their witness. He wrote a book. Uh, back in the 90s, I think, called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And, uh, and it spoke about how the church must begin to live out their witness in today's world. It's a bit of a longer story than I normally spend time on, but I promise you it will be worth it. Tony began to talk about a, a conference, a Christian conference that he had attended in Honolulu, Hawaii. I want to be invited to those conferences. Would you please spread the word? Since there was a six-hour uh, difference in time, uh, he was at his hotel, and he just woke up at 3.30 in the morning. And he couldn't go to sleep. He couldn't, he, he, there's no way that he was going to rest, so he was a little hungry. His body was on Philadelphia time, so he got up, got dressed, left the hotel where he was staying, and he began to search for a place that was open. Well, there's not a lot of places open except maybe a donut shop, and so he found one. And he went to this tiny donut shop. And this was the description of, of how he wrote the story. He said, the fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me what I wanted. I told him I wanted a cup of coffee and, and a donut. And as I sat there munching my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door suddenly swung open. And to my discomfort, eight or nine provocatively dressed and rather boisterous prostitutes came in. It was a small place, and they sat on both sides of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place, he said. 
I was just about to make my gateway, getaway when I heard the woman next to me say, you know, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to be 39 years old. Her friend responded in a rather nasty tone. So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake? You want me to sing happy birthday to you? Come on, the woman sitting next to me said. Why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you, it's going to be my birthday. Campolo said, when I heard that, I made a decision. After they all left, I found out from the diner manager that the birthday girl's name was Agnes, and she came every single night. I decided that I was going to throw a birthday party for Agnes the very next night. At 2.30 in the morning, Campolo said, I was back at the coffee shop the next day. Uh, the next morning, I picked up some crepe paper and some other decorations at the store and made a big sign with cardboard that said, Happy birthday, Agnes. I decorated the entire diner from one side to the other. I had it looking really great. The word must have gotten out on the street because at 3.15 that morning, every prostitute from Honolulu was at that place. There was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me, he said. At 3.30 in the morning on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friends. I had everybody ready. When they came in, we all jumped up and screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! Then we sang to her, Happy birthday! And you know, I've never seen a person more flabbergasted. Her mouth flew open. She was stunned, shaken. Her knees started to buckle and her friends had to steady her with holding her arms. I noticed she began to cry. And when the birthday cake with all the candles was carried out, that's when she lost it. She started sobbing. She looked at at us and asked if she could take the cake home. The whole thing. She got off her stool, she picked up the cake, and she carried it out of the diner as if it was the Holy Grail. She walked slowly down the sidewalk, and we all just stood there speechless. When the door closed behind her, there was a stunned silence in the place full of prostitutes, not knowing what else to do. I broke the silence by saying, what do you think if we begin to pray together? Looking back on it now, he said, it seems more than a little strange that a sociologist from Eastern PA would be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But I prayed. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry, the manager, leaned over and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you never told me that you were a preacher. What kind of preacher are you anyway? What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered him quietly. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes 
at 3.30 in the morning. Harry thought for a minute. And then, almost sneering, he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. In fact, he said, if there was, I'd join it. Let me ask you, what would happen if we, right here at Fairlawn Church of the Nazarene, were so serious about sharing the gospel with our community that prostitutes would feel comfortable coming? Broken marriages would come here because they had heard that's where you come to be mended. Those addicted would say, I heard something that's going on at Fairlawn. I want to be a part of that community. Those with no concept of the truth would be welcome to learn and participate and finally be changed. Can I tell you? That is the type of church I want to be a part of. How about you? Would you please stand this morning? I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 4. I'd like to take take another look at a story that we've talked about before, but I want to revisit the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well in relationship to the way that Jesus was creative in his evangelism. In John chapter 4, verse 4, I'm going to start reading there. I'll end at verse 15. My friends, listen, what I'm about to read to you is God's Word. It's inspired and without error, and I promise if you read it and apply it, it will change your life. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, did you know that 82% of unchurched people are likely to come to church if they are invited by a friend or a family member? Did you hear that? 82% of unchurched people are likely to come to church, accept that invitation, if the person who invites them is a family member or a friend that they trust. Yet only 21% of active churchgoers invite anyone to church. And only 2% of churchgoers invite any unchurched person to church. That's like saying, I want you to go over here to this very large apple tree and pick as much fruit as you can. And you look at that tree and all of the bottom branches are just heavy with these beautiful, gorgeous apples. Yet you get a ladder and you try to climb to the very top where there's no fruit. And you spend your time trying to find fruit there when down below is heavy with fruit. That's often what happens. 82% of those who are unchurched will go to church, will accept that invitation if Somebody that they know, love, and trust invites them. How does this inform how we are inviting others to consider the gospel? Someone looked up every interaction that Jesus had in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Looked up all of the interactions that he had with people that he ministered to. And found that 92% of his ministry conversations... The healings, the teachings, the evangelism all happened outside of the synagogue. 92% of his ministry happened outside of the religious walls. The story that we read just now is one of them. How does Jesus model for us where we personally need to focus our ministry what I'd like to ask this morning and answer is, what does this story teach us about how Christ ministered to people? First thing that I see in this story is that Jesus broke down barriers in order for people to believe. Now, you are very serious as a Bible uh, student, I know, and I've told you often, you cannot divorce a story with its geography, especially in the Old Testament, but many times in the New Testament, you have to know where the story took place or where Jesus is talking about. Always take note of the geographical information. It begins to color in the corners. It becomes your commentary. You learn about the context so much better. In this story, geography is a key issue because this woman is a Samaritan. So what barriers did Jesus break down in this story? The first is a cultural barrier. The woman was a Samaritan. That meant something very specific. During the days 
of Jesus, Israel was made up of three distinct areas in geography. In the south was what was called Judah. In the north was Galilee area. That's the Sea of Galilee area, beautiful up north. But in the middle, there was a section called Samaria. The story that, that we just read happens in Samaria. They had been traveling in the south. They needed to go north. So Jesus decides to take them not around on the eastern side of the Jordan River and up where it was safe in the north. He decides to go the quick route straight north. That meant he had to go through an area the Jews normally would not go. Jesus decides that he was going to make a statement and take the short route and go directly through Samaria. It would take three days to get straight north, many more days if he had to go around. But it wasn't because it was a quick path. That's not the reason why he decided to do it. There had been an issue, a century-old issue, feud, really, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Can we just say the Samaritans were the step-neighbor-in-law, 14th cousin removed of the Jews. They were somehow kin. Let me explain why. 700 years before Jesus was on earth, the Assyrians from the, west, the northeast invaded Israel. And they subjugated it. They enslaved many. And they removed a huge percentage of God's people, the Jews, out of the promised land and took them to Assyria, that area that we know today as Iraq. Jews during those many, many decades, even centuries, the Jews begin to intermarry with the Assyrians. After they intermarried and kind of forgot much of their history and much of their, their worship of the one true God, they, they, moved, they moved back to uh, Israel in the middle part of the country, and that is what we call Samaria. It was, it was a place where they had mixed true Judaism with false idol worship, and then they moved back to Israel. They truly became dead in the eyes of the Orthodox Christians. And from that day on, there was this serious rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews were discouraged to even walk through the middle of the country where the Samaritans lived. And the Samaritans built their own temples. One was there on Mount Gerizim where they mixed Judaism with other religions. And it was just an awful place, the Jews felt. But now, in this story, Jesus made a decision that he was going to purposely walk straight through this area, through Samaria. He knew that it, was, it, would, call, it, would, it would cause a great kerfluffle. Do you know that theological word, kerfluffle? It would cause a great mix of emotions and, and the people would be upset and they would be shaking their fists and beating their chest. That's a kerfluffle. You use the word kerfluffle or is that just a hillbilly term in Missouri? You now will use it, I promise. I pr if you'll use it at today's lunch, I will give each one of you a shiny dime. 
All right, we'll go on. But Jesus knew a great kerfluffle was going to happen if he walked through that, and Jesus was willing to break cultural barriers in order to reveal himself to the people of that community and especially that young lady. Can I ask you, what would breaking cultural barriers mean to you? What would it mean to this church if we were willing to break cultural barriers? Are there communities that we need to begin to walk through as a church and pray very specifically for houses, for communities, for neighbors, for businesses that are different than we are? Are there neighborhoods that we need to intentionally start Bible studies in? Are there those who are worshiping false gods that we need to stand outside of those gates and pray the Holy Spirit's presence on that place? I wonder. I wonder if God is calling us to break cultural barriers. There was another barrier that Jesus decided to purposely break, and it was a gender barrier. You see, this woman was a woman. During the days of Christ, being a woman was not an easy life. The strict rabbis forbade their own to greet a woman in public. The daily prayers of a Pharisee was that he thanked God every day that he wasn't a woman. The, a rabbi might not even speak to his own wife or daughter in public. There were even Pharisees that were known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they would shut their eyes anytime they saw a woman on the street and then they would walk into walls and bump into things and fall. That's how crazy it was. For a rabbi to speak to a woman in public was, was the way to end a good reputation. And Jesus not only has a conversation with a woman in the middle of the day, but he asks her if she would draw some water out of her own bucket. He was willing to break even gender barriers that were so strong during those days. Aren't you thankful for Christianity during the days of Jesus and Paul and Peter who begin to break those barriers, those gender barriers, and saying, listen, women are important. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love them unconditionally. Let's give them places of leadership in the church. Is there an amen in the house? Amen. He also broke moral barriers. The woman was a moral outcast. There was a good reason for this woman to be at the well during the hottest time of the day. It was noon. Most of the women would have gone to the well early in the day when it was cool they could relax, they could enjoy conversation with women without worrying about the men. The well for a village was a bit like a coffee pot in the office in uh, context today. They would just sit around and talk and, and enjoy conversations and talk about recipes and kids. It was just a, a wonderful, restful time for a woman of, of a good reputation. But this woman purposely chose to go get her water in the heat of the day because she didn't want to deal with the stares, the laughter, the pointing of fingers, the whispers, the mean 
cutting words. You see, she was broken morally. In her conversation with Jesus, we find that she had been married five different times. And the guy that she was with now, she was just shacking up with him. They weren't even married. She knows that she's broken. She knows that she's failed. She knows the entire village knows of her immorality, her adultery, her loose living, her sinfulness. It's all out in public. Yet there's something different about this man. Because Jesus was willing to talk to a broken woman, a sinful woman, who definitely lived on the wrong side of the tracks morally. And we don't have time to do a deep dive in the story, so I'd really, I'd really encourage you after your Nazarene nap to look at Matthew 4, 7 through 19 that I, I didn't spend a lot of time, especially 15 to 19, because it, 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 it clearly expresses the gospel that he begins to share with her. But what I want to focus on right now is her care for her and her response to that gospel that he begins to share. Jesus has just broken a cultural barrier, a gender barrier, a moral barrier, and his care and unconditional love for her causes her to be open to the truth. Something begins to open in her heart and she begins to hunger for what this man of God, and she doesn't quite understand who he is yet, it begins to open to what he begins to talk about. He shares with her that he can provide what she has always longed for. Living water, not just cool, fresh water from a well, but living water that she will never thirst again. She's always wanted that. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us, verse 25 says. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And it changed her life. Jesus reveals that his truth will set us genuinely free. Her response to the spoken truth was so genuine, so honest. She drops the water jar and runs back to the town to tell everyone in the town what happened. Do you remember who her neighbors are? You remember they're the ones who whispered, Pointed, it represented the place of brokenness. Her neighborhood represented pain and division, and it represented sin. Because I'm telling you, probably all five, all six of those men probably still lived in that community. As a constant reminder, all of her old husbands would have come out to listen to what she had to say. All of the homes that she broke, those wives came out to listen to what she had to say. All of the women 
that told stories of her every single morning at the well, knew all about her adultery, her brokenness, they came out when they heard this joyful noise of her telling her story. But can I tell you, that brokenness didn't matter anymore because the truth that Jesus told her revealed her true nature and it set her free. She said, come, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Do you know what was the response of the village? Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Once more, Jesus purposely revealed his truth to a hurting woman and later a whole village and they were immediately set free. So what does this story, how does this story inform Fairlawn, Church of the Nazarene, you specifically, how does it tell us how to be creative in our evangelism? The first thing is this. We must recognize that our personal ministry is much more outside of the building than inside the building. We don't just, we're not Christians one hour and a half on Sunday mornings only. It's where we work. We are mirroring the holiness of God wherever we are in any conversations. I've been praying, Lord, give me divine interventions. You know what that is? If I every morning said, Lord, I want to be your hand extended, and would you purposely find somebody who needs to hear your voice. It could be somebody that serves coffee to me at the restaurant. It could be the guy at the gas station that I see every day. It could be someone that I work with by my desk. It could be one of my family members. But what if we all begin to pray, Lord, give me a divine conversation with somebody. And then you know what happens? I look for that person all day long. I'm wondering, is that the person? I'm wondering the conversation that I get involved in, I'm beginning to wonder, Lord, is this the conversation that you're going to use to draw somebody to yourself? That's, that's living by faith. That's every step, that's every conversation that I have. I'm doing my best to, by faith, look for ways in which I can be his hand extended. So number one, pray for divine conversations every single day. The second thing is purposely pray for people in your circle of influence. 
God has purposely placed you exactly where you are. It's not a mistake. He put you in a family on purpose. Part of your influence circle are those right around you. It's your mom, your dad, your brother. It's, it's, your, it's your uncle. Those that, that are, are family members, your very close friends, right? And then he begins to give you other circles. It's, it's those that you work with, those at school, those that that you know that you're talking to often, that God has just given you a, a good relationship. God has purposely placed you in that circle of influence. And the third circle of influence are those interests that God has given you. He's given you an interest in certain things, in certain groups. Maybe it's a, it's a, it's cert, it's a certain gift that he's given you and you're always looking to, to, to play that game or do, do that art or go to that place or read that type of news. What if God was inviting you to pray specifically for those people or that issue that you see in the news? Or that one thing that really grates you related to the politics. What if God is inviting you to pray specifically for that one person? I invite you every day, look and ask for God for a conversation. And then pray for the, influ the, the, the influence circles that you're involved in. And then expect God to use you. That's faith. It's expectation that God is going before you. What do I tell you every single morning before we leave? Go in peace. Why? Because God has already gone before you. And he's preparing those people. He's softening their hearts. He's moving them. He's having conversations with them. And all of a sudden, you have coffee with that person. And it's all prepared. And God begins through the Holy Spirit to empower you and you get to tell your story and God's already begun working on them and guess what happens? The Holy Spirit has freedom to begin to move in somebody's life. We must recognize that our ministry is much more outside of this building than in. Number two, there are people in your life who you are the only one who cares enough to pray for their salvation or will welcome an invitation to come to church. That is a great responsibility. A couple Sundays ago, I talked to you about how when we brought both of our sons home from the hospital, the, there was just this great weight of responsibility on this dad and this mom's heart that we were the only people in the entire world that could protect completely, to provide food and healing and unconditional love. I wonder if we would take that responsibility, our spiritual responsibility, that perhaps you are the only person that God is talking to you to about praying for someone else. Take that responsibility serious. Number three, crossing barriers for the sake of the gospel will not be comfortable. Can I tell you, it will cost you emotionally. Relationships are expensive. It may even cost you some money, and I promise you that relationship will cost you some time. But God invites us 
to take steps of faith, to have deep conversations with people. When I was in college back in the late 80s, I took an evangelism class, and for some reason back in those days, uh, going door-to-door calling was a thing. Now, all of us today in this context that we live in, we know that that is not very fruitful. Can I tell you, in the 80s, it wasn't either. (laughs) In fact, us college kids would pray that those people weren't home when we knocked on that door. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. God invites us to have long, warm, deep relationships with people that God has called us to minister to. And it's going to take time. It's going to take months, years, maybe even decades to finally have the permission the encouragement to speak truth in their life. So can I invite you, take the long road. It's okay. Take the long road and have deep, long conversations with God, with people that God has called you to walk the journey with. The last one is this, unconditional love and spiritual freedom is so life-changing that it will naturally spread When people see that our lives have been changed, they're going to ask us questions. All you need to do is to be ready to tell your story because somebody will see something different in your life. If they're not seeing something different in your life, you need to change the way that you're living your life. Amen? But people are going to say, there's, how do you walk through those difficulties with peace? I don't get it. How do, you, how do you live your life when things are going wrong? There's something different about you. And that's your clue. That's your opportunity to be in to say, can I just tell you what Jesus has done for me? My life was a mess. I was in pain. I was addicted. I said horrible things. I was sinful. But you know what? On that one day, Jesus showed me who I was and what he wanted me to become. And I had faith to trust Jesus to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me from unrighteousness, and to infill me. And he did. And my life isn't perfect right now. And I still stumble and I still do bad things, but there is this sense in me that God wants me to live a righteous, holy life, and I ask forgiveness again, and I would never, ever go back. And I want to serve Jesus for all times. It's as simple as that. You don't need to have a 49-point sermon with, with 62 scriptures included. People just want to know your story. And you're going to have the privilege of sharing your story with them because you had a lifetime of walking the journey with them. Let me ask you, what would happen to a church like ours if we were willing to cross barriers, whatever they would be, to speak the truth and then to expect God to multiply our efforts, I wonder. What would happen if you 
personally begin to ask God to lay someone on your heart. Encourage you to pray for them every day. Express genuine love and by faith then look forward to telling the story of salvation to them. I wonder. Would you please stand? No. I will be the first to confess that I don't know how to throw parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Never done it. But that is the type of evangelism that we're going to have to look for. Opportunities to break barriers, ministering to people that we've never ministered to before. Our community, our community right here on Fairlawn is desperately searching for a message that speaks their language. It's the language of a prostitute. It's the message of the addicted. It's the message of just of the lonely, the one who is anxious. It's the message of a broken marriage. It's a message of someone so deep in debt that they don't know how to get out of. It's the message of Jesus. Did you know Jesus speaks prostitutes? Did you know that Jesus knows exactly how to speak to the one who's living with addictions? He's a great translator, but he speaks their heart language. There are people in our community who have ugly habits, and we need to have answers for them. There are broken people who are personal friends of yours. They're already personal friends of yours. They've never attended. They've never heard that there truly is a man by the name of Jesus that is the Christ. They've maybe used the name Jesus, but it's not in a manner that we know our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. But they're waiting for you. They're waiting for God's hands to be creative, to be committed, to be prayerful, and to be faithful. It's not that we just make plans to go and do. It's not that we just pray, but we pray and then lean forward into the wind, waiting for God to answer the prayer that we just prayed. Don't just pray and leave it there, but pray and then ask, Lord, how do you want me to help you fulfill it? Let's do this together. Will we become the church that will do whatever it takes to creatively share Christ with our community? Creative evangelism. We believe that lost people matter to God. Therefore, ought to matter to this church. We are dedicated 
to bringing people to a commitment to Christ through God-honoring, creative, and relative means. Heavenly Father, our hearts are heavy right now because there are loved ones, there are people that we have relationships, employees, neighbors who have not yet accepted Christ as their personal Savior. And we want to be your hand extended to constantly lift them before you. And Father, we recognize that even here in our congregation of this size, there are many who have not yet put their faith in you. And I am believing that today that you have begun to work in some of their hearts. And so, Father, as we pray, I invite those who have not yet accepted Christ to pray with me. Heavenly Father, my heart is broken because of my sin. By faith, I confess to you that I am far from you and I desperately need your forgiveness. I invite you to cleanse my heart, to remove anything that separates me from you, to make me righteous for your son's namesake. Jesus forgave me of my sins through his death on the cross, and I, by faith, accept his work, not my own. So, Father, cleanse me, revive me, give me that living water that only you can provide. 
And by faith, I will step out from this place and I will live for you. I will invite you into my life. I invite you to break my habits. I invite you to cleanse me from addictions. I invite you to fill the places that I've kept away from you and I've locked those doors. I unlock those doors so that you can fill me completely. I love you, Father, and I dedicate myself to you. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Father, we as your church commit ourselves to breaking barriers so that we could see people come to you as their personal Savior, inviting you to radically change their lives. Would you show us how to do that? Would you show us how to do our ministry outside of the church wherever we live? Would you show us those unchurched people that we be need to begin to have a relationship with? We are going to trust you, Father, for this and we're going to look forward every day. We're going to pray by faith that you would give us those opportunities. And we ask these sayings in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you receive this benediction, church? May you realize that the world is watching you to see how Jesus is revealed in you. The village people told the Samaritan woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You have personal friends and family who are desperate for the truth. May God give you the faith and commitment to creatively draw them to the truth of Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace, for he's already gone before you. You are dismissed, my friends. Thank you.